Hello and welcome to show 12 of the Low Tox Life podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today I'm chatting to a wonderful business owner who cares for people and planet in all that he does. It is Simon Griffith from the, the hilarious company, there's no other way to put it, Who Gives a Crap? And I'm laughing because my mother doesn't like me saying crap online or social media, but I can't help it this time, mum, because it's the business's fault, it's in their brand name. So hopefully you're are okay with it just this once. Now, Simon's awesome and we will get to him in just a minute, but I do have a brilliant program partner for you for the next two weeks who's offered us a fabulous deal and you know that I would never bring you anyone who doesn't pass my rigorous low-tox test of being an ethical brand produced in the most sustainable way possible and being good for us and our health as well. And that is Rose Hip Plus and they're an Australian certified organic brand, family-owned and they don't have any of the nasties in them. They don't animal test. Their packaging is recyclable. They're ticking all the boxes. And what I love about rosehip oil is it's a little bit of a, a cure-all in so many different uses, uh, both for beauty aspects as well as for health aspects of our skin, especially, of course. And they've given us 25% off with the code name Life. And I've got all those details in the show notes so that you can make the most of this deal. But I just wanted to share a few of the things that I use rosehip oil for. Now, my hair is pretty thick and if it's doing a flyaway thing or a static thing, then it turns into this humongous directionless flying through the air all around my head, thick pile of who knows what. And they have this little product that's got a massage boil on the end. And so it's a roll-on rosehip oil. And I love this A for travelling because, you know, having carrying a dropper around in the plane and or, you know, on long drives and trying to negotiate dropping oil out onto your hands and rubbing it on your hands you know, can sometimes get a bit messy. You can drop some. So the roll-on keeps it all really neat and super easy to use. But I find for a quick fix on the hair front, especially when I've just blow-dried and it's a bit poofy, if anyone remembers um, Steel Magnolias, I totally remember Sally Fields saying that. Uh, and... You just roll it into your hands and what's great about that is, again, you don't get much rosehip oil on there. So you don't risk getting this huge clump of oil on your hair and making you look like you've got an oil slick going on. But you just tame the flyaways, give it a little bit of shine and away you go. The other thing I like the roll-on for is just rolling directly onto sunspots and on fine lines around the corners of my mouth, which because I smile so much, I have some pretty big lines there and I really do feel like it's a bit of a complexion smoother and brightener and I've definitely seen results in uh, just fading those sunspots a little bit. So uh, I've only been using it for about five months now so really for me I find that to be quite a fast result. Nothing happens overnight but it is a really great uh, thing to have in your toolkit and of course if you have the plain rosehip oil with the dropper that they have, uh, completely fragrance free as well which I like because sometimes people react to even natural fragrances that are derived from essential oils in products. So if that is you, you will love this range because there are no fragrances at all, natural or otherwise. And with the dropper, you can, my favorite little scrub trick is to just drop a little bit, probably one dropper full in your hand and then add a little teaspoon of Rapidura sugar or um, Celtic sea salt, coarse grind to the, the rosehip oil, rub it through 
through your hands, rub it on your face, give it a good scrub and then rinse off with water and towel dry. And it is moisturizing and dead skin removing all in the one go. And you just, I always feel like I wake up with much softer skin once I've done a little treatment like that. And it's so quick, it's so cheap, and it's a once or twice a week little beauty self-care thing that you can do. Uh, And I I really recommend um, you giving it a go if you haven't tried doing that already. So that's my few words on our wonderful program partner. Thank you so much for offering us a generous 25% off. And I know lots of you out there, Australian residents only, I'm afraid, will be making the most of that. Now, that means we can now hook into today's show. I know you're going to love Simon. He tells some wonderful stories about what he's learnt about being a social entrepreneur so far, as well as sharing the who gives a crap story and how they have really gotten this off the ground in a brilliant way. You are going to love the puns in this brand and their communications, and I know you'll love Simon. Enjoy the show. And here is Simon Griffiths, founder of Who Gives a Crap. I'm so excited. Hi, Simon. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited too. <laughs> it's awesome to have you here. And and uh, I will never forget the time that someone who did one of my e-courses wrote me a little note and said, hey, did you realize you were in the drop-down section of choices on how people found out about Who Gives a Crap? And I was like, wow, that's so exciting. So many people buying good toilet paper. And today we're going to demystify exactly why buying good toilet paper is such an important thing to do. But I really want first for us to hear a little bit about you, how you got to be doing what you do today. How does someone decide to found a toilet paper company? Can you talk to us a little bit about you as a little guy growing up and if there was an inkling of you possibly growing up to be a social entrepreneur based on your interests and choices at school and all that kind of stuff? Like, give us a little window into the past of Simon's life. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I I guess I was one of those really entrepreneurial kids. So I would have started my first business when I was seven or eight, trying to uh, see if I could pet sit all of the pets in the neighborhood when people were away on holidays. I went through high school, you know, selling stuff to friends and making stuff and yeah, trying to you know, set up small businesses all the way through. And then uh, I grew up in Perth in Western Australia, which is the most isolated city in the entire world, as you probably well know. (laughs) And so as soon as I could, which was just after I turned 17, I finished school and and left Western Australia and um, and moved to a bigger city where there was kind of more opportunities. I took a year off and, and traveled around the UK and started a web design business. And then that kind of paid for my way through university when I came back and moved to Melbourne, where I ended up studying and still live today. Awesome. And did you always know you wanted to work for yourself? I mean, sometimes when you're an entrepreneurial kind of kid, there's still that element of wanting to learn from other people. Or did you just go into business on your own straight away? Yeah, I think, you know, what was my, my journey is kind of really interesting because there, there was that really heavy entrepreneurial spirit all through my childhood and, you know, I guess the first year of my teens. But then once I got into university, I think I probably realized that I could, if I set my mind to things, I could probably achieve more than what I did at school. And so I sort of became really interested in what I was studying, which was still in relation to, you know, some of the business related stuff that I'd done while I was overseas in the UK doing web design and web development. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, I sort of became really interested in study and um, spent six years kind of, I guess, having a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit beat out of me, which is what happens at university <laughs> and funneled into a, um, 
a more of a corporate pathway. Yeah. And so it wasn't really until the end of my degree that I kind of took a step back from everything and sort of, you know, had to think about all of the things that I liked doing and everything, you know, where my life had really been pointing towards in, in terms of where I wanted to go. And I think at that point kind of realized that the corporate world actually wasn't right. And there was um, a few things going on. One of them was that entrepreneurial spirit kind of coming out and that, you know, interest and intrigue and things and wanting to explore them further but also this very strong um, pull to the developing world where I'd spent a lot of my university holidays at the time thinking that it was because it was, you know, more cost effective to, to go and spend your holidays in Southeast Asia than it was to fly across the country to see my, my family in Western Australia because the cost of living is quite high in Western Australia but very low in Southeast Asia. Right. So originally you were going to these developing countries not because you wanted to check out, you know, humanitarian projects and things. It was actually purely because of the cost of living. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. You know, like in the first, you know, I, I guess because that sort of entrepreneurial spirit is also an opportunistic spirit, I of guess. Course. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I studied engineering and economics. So I was always kind of um, thinking about the economics of things and mm. worked out that the economics of, of being in Southeast Asia was better from a financial point of view, but also a like overall happiness point of view. So it was kind of an easier decision for me to make. But then as I spent more and more time there throughout my university years, um, I guess I slowly started to realize that I loved going back there, not, not just for the, you know, the financial economics of it. It's because there was a real interest and intrigue there for me around development economics and, you know, uh, how to sort of what you can do to improve the lives of people who are living in relatively poor conditions. Interesting. So did that kind of creep up on you slowly over those years? Yeah, totally. So it was definitely not the initial motivation, but, you know, towards the fourth, fifth, sixth year of my degree, I, I realized that I was really passionate about development economics in particular mm -hmm. and kind of re-geared my degree so that that was kind of what I was focusing on towards the end of, of wrapping up at university. Cool. And just for people out there who might not have ever heard of the term development economics, can you just talk to us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Yeah, so I guess it's about, you know, um, the type of development economics that I'm interested in is individual decision making in the developing world. So why someone would choose to do one thing over another or what prohibits someone from being able to make a certain set of, of decisions that you might be able to make here in Australia, but you can't make in, you know, different parts of the developing world. Um, and then the, the macroeconomic side of that as well is, you know, what holds a country back and, and stops it from being able to grow in economic terms mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, holds back the quality of life for the people that live in that country. Interesting. Cool. Okay. So you get to the end of uni and you've become passionate about development economics and you think that you can really make a difference. At what point did making a difference articulate itself as your first social enterprise, um, ripple.org. And can you talk to us a little bit about how that idea was formed? Yeah. So I guess, you know, like kind of trying to put it all into perspective. So I guess high school was kind of a bit cowboy and, you know, about opportunity and trying different things. And then university was a bit more economics nerd kind of focused, um, you know, more academic. Yeah. And then kind of coming out at the end, there was a realization that, I could kind of combine those two things together and use those kind of that cowboy streak and the risk taking and, um, you know, interest in, in small business to create these social outcomes that were positive for um, people in the developing world. And so that's really like it kind of brought these two passions of mine that had developed over many years together and, and fused them into something that, um, yeah, really felt right for me. 
And the first foray into that was was Ripple, which was a click-to-give and search-to-give website that we launched in 2007, so mm-hmm. just as I was wrapping up at university. And the idea was that you could click on a particular organization or charity that we were supporting and could view an advertisement or run a Google search and the revenue generated from the ad that sat behind the search would be donated to the charity that you'd selected when you came to the website in the first place. So it wasn't actually my idea. It was a friend that I was at university with who said, you know, there's all of this, this internet advertising, this market's blowing up. Why can't we use that revenue to do something positive? And so 100% of the revenue that was generated through the click to give and the search to give platform was, was donated, which, um, you know, in hindsight probably wasn't the most sustainable business model. <laughs> And that's kind of what we learnt out after learnt after running it for a few years. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because we see, you know, social entrepreneurialism, not for profits, these sorts of businesses as unfortunately we see them as, well, it's your duty because in your heart you want to do this thing and therefore you should just wanna do it for free. But if we're really gonna make social enterprise successful and sustainable, as well as for not for profits for that matter, we need to be paying great wages to the people who are running them, ensuring that they're profitable, because you know, without the money, unfortunately, at the end of the day, if you can't meet some basic needs of your own, these wonderful ideas can pretty quickly go down the toilet when you realize they're just not sustainable and you yourself won't be able to make a living in the process. The thing for us was we said, well, this is a platform that once we set it up, in theory, shouldn't need any additional work and therefore we don't need to draw any income ah, from it. Yes. But what we didn't realize was that, you know, and it makes a lot of sense now, the internet was going to change at an incredibly rapid pace mm. and we need to be staying at the forefront of, of what was happening in that space and without any budget to further develop the site or to have someone that was working on it, you know, and spending large amounts of time on it, we just wouldn't be able to do that. So we lost relevance, you know, quite quickly and something that, that made a lot of sense when we first launched it a couple of years later, all of a sudden didn't wasn't quite the best fit for what was out there still. Yeah, things move fast, hey, online. Mm. Now, so clean water is obviously your main focus as a cause and you spent some time in South Africa, didn't you, once you'd launched that project, presumably to fully understand the extent of the need of the work that you wanted to do. How did that trip affect you and were there any defining moments where you thought, this is it, like I actually have no choice, this is what I must contribute to? Yeah, so I think, you know, that trip was really interesting because I, at that point, you know, recently finished up university, we'd launched Ripple and I'd kind of figured out that I didn't want to stay in the corporate space. So I, I'd kind of essentially sidestepped and gone into a, a pure nonprofit role with a development aid organization in South Africa, mm-hmm. working on an education-based project. And it was really interesting because I'd sort of, you know, previous to that, I'd been working in, in these, you know, very corporate roles with, you know, some companies that are considered to be fairly evil, I guess. Yeah. No names, no names mentioned, but yeah, kind of backflipped and, and went into a pure nonprofit environment. And I, it was really, you know, for me, it was really great because I was back in the developing world, which was an environment that I loved. It was my first time in Africa and I, I really enjoyed, you know, kind of learning more about Africa firsthand and firsthand is always the best way for me to learn. And I was also working obviously on something that, you know, the outcome was really aligned with my values and what I wanted to be doing as the bigger picture moving forward. But what was really interesting for me was that it didn't take too long for me to realize that, you know, the skills that I developed at university were not really being put to 
the the best possible use in that environment. Mm -hmm. And I was also really constrained in the number of people that I could impact on a daily basis because I was only working with a small number of kids that were going through this program. And yes, the impact was huge on an individual level, but I personally wouldn't ever be able to reach more than say a hundred people over, you know, a couple of years if I stayed in that in that same that same position. And so I realized that that type of development didn't make sense for me. I wanted to do something that was more scalable where I could potentially reach more people. Mm. And um, I think the other thing that came out of it was realizing that that style of organization is often competing with other organizations doing similar things for the same pool of funds. And as a result, you might get you know five or ten organizations spending a lot of time trying to attract donor dollars yes instead of just focusing on you know the the work that they're really good at and so i I guess i became really interested with how do we go about changing the funding system so Mm. that there's a larger pool of funds available because if we're just dealing with the traditional philanthropy market it's essentially relatively capped you you can't just double the size of of philanthropy in australia or in the world overnight it's something that's not really going to change you know from one year to the next and I thought, well, there must be a, another way for us to get more funding flowing into these types of organizations. And that's really, again, where this kind of interest of how do we use the market and you know sell products that have profits that are donated to create something positive yeah. instead of just relying on traditional giving and philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's many, many projects we can work on, right, in life. And there's many, many causes we can work towards. So what were some of the things that you saw that really touched you that made clean water your cause? Yeah, I think, you know, at that point, I'd spent a lot of time in the developing world. And I think everyone's probably had one of those horrible toilet experiences. (laughs) Um, And one of the, the big things that came out of that was, you know, after kind of looking at development for several years, realizing that those nasty toilet experiences weren't changing. And that's because the sanitation problem and there's, you know, now 2.3 billion people without access to adequate sanitation. That's crazy. Uh, which is mm. it's almost 40% of the entire world. Mm. And it's a massive problem because it, it results in diarrhea-related disease that fills half the hospital beds in sub-Saharan Africa and kills about 900 children under the age of five every day. God. But the worst part of it is that it's, it's not changing very quickly. You know, it's not, it's not improving over time. And that's because Toilets are kind of, you know, pretty gross, disgusting. They're not dinner party conversation. They're difficult to make sexy. Mm. And as a result, they were always the elephant in the room of the development aid kind of circles, I guess, because it was difficult to figure out how to, how to sell toilets and make them something that people want to talk about and, and be involved with. Mm. And that's since changed a lot. You know, the Gates Foundation's done a lot of work in, in sort of opening that up and making it a topic of, of conversation. But Certainly when we sort of got started, it was, um, it was something that was a huge issue and, and it still is, but it's, it's got a bit better. That's awesome. So it seems like that's a pretty good segue for us to start talking about Who Gives a Crap, your um, current and awesome business. And end of 2011, I clearly remember jumping on board the new Who Gives a Crap crowdfunding campaign to buy my toilet paper. Now, why would I have gotten excited about that? Well, two reasons. One was obviously buying toilet paper and doing good at the same time. I really liked the idea of something I needed all the time. Didn't really care where I bought it from too much. So I might as well buy it from someone who's giving a huge chunk of the profits to clean water causes and sanitation projects. But the second thing was is the way that you guys communicated it, which was just 
and still is super hilarious. And anyone who, after our chat today, who will be directing, obviously, to the Who Gives a Crap website, whether you're here or very soon to be able to buy in the US or the UK, like, it's just such fun to buy toilet paper. I never thought I could have fun buying toilet paper. When you tabled the idea of socially conscious toilet paper (laughs) to family and friends. Did anyone think you were crazy? Um, Yeah, I think, you know, it was always something that was was quite polarizing. So, you know, people would either, we'd tell them the idea and they'd be like, oh my God, that's amazing. You have Mm. to do it. Or they would think that we were crazy and, you know, it's disgusting. (laughs) And um, yeah, it was really interesting kind of looking at the different responses that came back from it. But it's obviously been really well received yeah. since then. And yeah, it's been a, a, a great little thing to get off the ground. It's fantastic. And I'm obviously pretty big on social justice myself. Love the message. But, you know, this this making it sexy, making it fun, making it fun to talk about and actually recommend toilet paper, that's an art in itself. And that's a huge part I see as why you guys have been successful. Do you write the copy yourself? I want to know. Uh, Um, in the very early days I you know did some of our our early copywriting but now no one will let me anywhere near the copy because it's something that you know we hold so much pride over and and my copywriting skills are just nowhere near as good as as some of the the people that we've worked with on it so the person that helped us initially is called Sheridan Tallett and she runs Miss Tallett which is a a copywriting business out of the Mm -hmm. UK and we just loved the work that she'd done with a company called Innocent Juice in the UK. Oh, yep, yep. And um, yeah, she, you know, she loved the project and, and helped us to to do all of the initial packaging. Which at the time, I remember thinking, "Oh my God, we're spending so much money on on words." Like it's it's kind of um, was something that was really um, difficult to justify, but you know, in hindsight, so glad that we did. It was such a great investment to, um, yeah, really kind of get the brand off the ground with with all of that in place. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were tabling ideas for this business, so the the toilet paper idea, um, did you consciously decide to plant laughter and fun into the brand from the beginning or was it something that evolved once you guys talked about how it was going to be marketed and launched? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, the name itself, who gives a crap, you know, and we donate 50% of our profits um, to build toilets in the developing world. We kind of had to use humor in there. But I think we also walk a very fine line around, you know, how how dirty that humor is. And, and we always say that, you know, our brand name is the dirtiest thing that you'll ever yeah, hear from us. Cool. And so everything else is about having fun and making people feel good by doing something that's that's good rather than uh, you know, using the kind of the, the problem that we're solving and and guilt to motivate sales. So we want we want people to feel really great when they support us and and buy our product, rather than feel guilty for not supporting us and not buying. Absolutely. Our product. And so the stats on how much you guys have been able to achieve in these few short years are pretty crazy already. Can you talk to us a little bit about the amount of change you've affected and give us some stats? Yeah, so we we um, we've actually just very recently decided to talk about our donation figure for the first time. So to June 30 of 2016, which is roughly three years of of consistent trade, because we after we sold our, our first crowdfunding campaign product, we we sold out of stock mm. quite quickly, and so it was only in 
July 2013 that we really got started. But in those first three years of trade, we've donated $428,500. That's brilliant. Um, and then when we look at that in terms of the environmental impact from people who are switching over to a recycled product instead of using a, um, you know, a virgin pine product, it works out at about 30,000 trees that have been saved, 74 million litres of water and almost 6,000 tonnes of, of CO2 gas emissions which have been avoided. So it's you know huge on an environmental perspective and, and obviously the, the donations and what we're able to do in the developing world with, with that, that funding is awesome mm, as well. Very, very cool. And so production, that obviously happens in China and you know, I think a lot of people get upset when things aren't made in the country that they're sold from but I've been doing a little bit of research into this lately through the what the David Suzuki Foundation provides. And I was really interested to learn that it's the way you produce and the the actual production itself that accounts for nearly 90% of the carbon emissions of the product. And in fact, shipping and air miles, if you like, only account for around 11% of the overall emissions of a product. So I found that to be a really great realisation for myself in terms of the most important thing being how is this thing made and what materials are being used to make it and if it's food you know how is it farmed and and what chemicals are used in the farming and all that sort of stuff way more important so it therefore makes total sense to me that you would choose somewhere like china if I think about, you know, the fact that the recycling plants there would have way more paper in the first place for you to be drawing on. Can you talk to us a little bit more about why you do use China? Are there are there some interesting kind of reasons behind your decision to manufacture there? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing to acknowledge here, I think, is that China gets a fairly mm. bad rap in the in the Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's people say, oh, God, it's made in China. And I think, well, there's, you know, there's made in China and made in China, just like there's yeah, beef exactly. and there's beef <laughs> and there's zucchini and there's zucchini. There's good and bad in everything. So, yeah, I'd be really keen yeah. to hear and your I thoughts. Think, you know, in, in Australia in the last 12 months, I think we've we've seen a lot of issues around labor laws in Australia and that, you know, some um, organizations might be skirting around the labor laws in ways that are not beneficial for, for what's going on in this country as well. So I think it's, you know, there's, we've learned so much about all of that going through the process of manufacturing overseas, but really the, the, where it all came from initially was we actually looked at producing in Australia and the producer that we were talking to was a couple of things here. The, the big one was they, they said, you, can, you cannot produce this product at a cost competitive price um, in Australia, which basically meant that if we were going to make this successful, we had to look overseas and they recommended that we have a look at China for products just because of the, you know, the quality being mm. very good. But the other thing that was really interesting was when we were looking at the Australian production, we found that a lot of the raw materials being imported from China, Canada or Chile which meant that the environmental footprint of the manufacturing was actually quite different to, I guess, what we'd initially expected when we thought of a product was being made in Australia. And so a lot of the, you know, the laws around what made in Australia means allow you to not necessarily be fully transparent around what's going into the product that's being produced. And then, yeah, we went to China and looked at a bunch of different options. And I think there's a, a, lot, of, a lot of learning came out of that for us. The, the big one for me was... Uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get my head around foreign production and sitting on a train going back to Hong Kong from Guangzhou and realizing that 
literally every single thing that I had on me with the exception of my wallet was made mm. in China. But I had very little understanding of, of what was going on in the factories in those locations. And so we sort of saw it as an opportunity to work with a producer that when we first went and visited them was, were doing excellent things in terms of quality, but were doing some things that we weren't happy with in terms of uh, you know, safety and some other areas of production where we thought there was room for improvement. And we could use our supply contracts with them to say, well, yes, we'd like to work with you, but we'll work with you on the condition that we improve X, Y, and Z so that we can make sure that we're making things better than what they've been made previously. And as a result, improve the lives of the, the workers that are in that factory. And probably the last part of it was that we realized that by producing in a developing country instead of in Australia, it meant that a lot of the tasks that were done by machines in Australia were done partly by machines, but partly by humans in the developing world. And really our mission is around improving lives of, of people in the developing world. So to be able to provide a person with a job instead of having a machine to do the same job, provided that person was working in a safe environment and getting paid fairly was a really great outcome for us. That's brilliant. And so it kind of, it all sort of fit together, but yeah, it was a real learning curve because we'd never done foreign production before and had to you know, really skill up on what that meant and how to ensure that we were doing it in a way that was responsible. Mm, cool. And how do you actually ensure fair labour wages? Is it something that's just in the contract or...? It's, so when we work with, when we start looking at a new factory, we kind of go through this due diligence process where we look at what they're doing um, in terms of quality and ensuring that the quality is consistently there in terms of the environment and then also in terms of their mm -hmm. labour force. Um, so we sit down with them and look at how they go about paying their staff and ensure that they're meeting criteria that, that we set that are, you know, above what the, at or above what the government requires them to be doing. And now, you know, we've always done that since day one, but now that we're getting bigger, we're, we're sort of going back and also starting to put them through third-party certification processes so that we've got third-party certifiers looking at that as well. So it's not just us working with them and ensuring that, they're meeting our standards, but we have, yeah, third-party certifiers that are going through that same process and monitoring it moving forward as well. That's brilliant. And the tree-free production side, that's quite new and that's sort of from your tissues and your pa kitchen paper towel, is that right, which you've added to the range? Yeah. Yeah, so our, our tissues and we've, we've also got a premium product which is not currently on our website because we've just finished testing it, but I think we'll be live again once the podcast is, is oh, I up. just totally uh, wanted to giggle when you said we've just finished testing it. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> my bad. Yeah, so we, we kind of talk about a, a soft launch and a strong launch for all of our products and we've just wrapped up the soft launch phase for the premium. Yep. So we're going to the strong launch in September. Okay, then. <laughs> Oh, it's too funny. I did a, a podcast. My very first show was with a wonderful naturopath and we talked about poo for an hour and um, we managed to get quite a few puns in there. So I, I, I don't doubt that we might be able to sneak a few into our last few minutes too. <laughs> but yeah, so the, um, the, basically we produce with either with 100% bamboo or with a blend of bamboo and sugarcane mm -hmm. waste. Um, and the motivation for us for that came from a realisation that not everyone will will make a switch to recycled paper, and if we want to have the most impact that we that we possibly mm. can, we need to ensure that we're reaching the largest possible you know segment of the market. And the one of the big reasons why people won't use rec recycled paper is there's a stigma associated with it, and then for some people it's it's just not of high enough quality, regardless of what what we seem to do. So you know we pride ourselves on making really soft, high quality recycled mm. tissue. 
but there's some customers that would just never be happy with with the product that we were producing, even though we thought it was great. Um, and so Bamboo was kind of a step in moving towards the more kind of premium side of the market, producing um, the strongest possible paper that we could while still having you know, the environmental benefit of a more sustainable production mm-hmm. approach. And, um, and the reason why it's stronger is because we're using a, a virgin bamboo, which is a grass, so it's very fast growing, um, which makes it much better for the environment. And then as a result of it being a virgin material, which hasn't been pulped a number of times before, it's got longer paper fibers, which overlap a larger distance and therefore make the paper stronger once it's been, um, you know, pulped and, and formed into the tissue paper. And so that's, that's the soft test went incredibly well. Customer feedback was awesome. And as a result, yeah, we're really excited to be rolling that out a bit later this year. And likewise, with the, the, the kitchen towel and the tissues, the feedback's been great. So we're really excited to keep those on, on our store. Yeah, I really like the kitchen paper towels. They're fantastic. It's not something I use a huge amount of. I'm more into the tea towel myself just for ultimate sustainability nerd factor. Yep. But, you know, sometimes you just need them. They are so useful for certain things. And it's definitely right up with, right up there with the, the mainstream ones. So I would absolutely urge people to... to make the switch yeah and we're the same and you know we definitely wouldn't encourage people to use a paper towel over a reusable Mm. option but you know there are those some circumstances where you do just want that that paper towel yeah it's just super useful right sometimes it's just the only thing that'll do now so you've had a bar in in between all this i'm gonna i'm gonna take us off who gives a crap for a little second because i think this was a pretty cool idea for a bar which was now it was called oh gosh what was it called she bean am i right yes yep she bean and yep, yep. all of the spirits were from developing countries and beers as well yes we sold our spirits were a bit of a mix but all of our beers and wines we sourced from different parts of the developing yeah. world and then the idea was that it was a non-profit bar so any profit that was generated was donated back to development projects in the countries where we sourced the products mm-hmm. from and so when you uh, say so non-profit kind of people were taking their wages but then anything over and above that was donated back to the countries yeah yeah so this sort of grew out of that frustration with ripple where we realized that a 100% profit donation model just mm. didn't work and so i said well you know if we made this a non-profit we can still pay wages we don't need to rely on volunteers you know we pay our suppliers and we pay a commercial rent and then yeah anything that's left over instead of that going into the owner's pocket we'd be able to to donate brilliant and did it go well i mean unfortunately you had to close i think due to a council issue or noise issue was it yeah. a, was it a cool I'm, I'm really sad i didn't get to go oh it was it was really fun um you should definitely have a look at some images online if, if you've never been in there it was it was really you know it was kind of a breath of, breath of tropical fresh air in the midst yeah. of the city and um yeah it, we, we had really good initial early performance um made a, a good early donation and then we had a period of really mixed performance where we had some management uh turnover which always affects yeah. hospitality businesses a few other operational issues and kind of put in place a plan for us to move back into a position of strong profitability and then about 12 months ago we had a very bizarre issue where the we discovered that the wall of our band room was actually shared with the sleeping quarters of the police station that was oh, around the corner no. from us <laughs> and um <laughs> as you can imagine the police made life somewhat difficult for us and the the biggest kind of outcome of that was although we were you know did everything we could to be compliant we had to put in place a 
11 p.m. live music curfew as part of a clause of our liquor license, which we weren't previously mm. aware of. And unfortunately, that meant that, yeah, uh, we couldn't book the caliber of bands that we had been, you know, built our business on. And um, our patron numbers dropped by about 20%. Our revenue dropped about 15% over the last 12 months. And we couldn't cut costs fast enough to keep the business profitable. And so we, after sort of trying everything we possibly could, made the very difficult decision that we needed to close it down. So that, yeah, we, we wrapped up on, I think, the 24th of mm. June this year. So almost two months yeah, ago now. Such a shame. But maybe mm. maybe again in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, Shabin, there's so much that came out of it. It was really, you know, it was one of a small number of businesses that were testing something like that globally. So there's a philanthropy pub in Portland, Oregon. Um, there was a nonprofit bar in Washington, D.C. that opened about two months before us. So we were the second globally to test something like like that out. And then Portland's philanthropy pub opened mm-hmm. after us. And I think, you know, it was really positive in terms of allowing people to come down and experience an environment that was designed to just do that, you know, that pure nonprofit yeah. focus. It was a real breath of fresh air. And we know that, you know, we had a lot of great ideas come out of releasing a concept like that into, into Melbourne. So, yeah, although I think, you know, the impact wasn't there for us in terms of the donations that the business made, there was definitely a kind of, you know, ripple effect essentially that that came out of Shabin, which was awesome. And Who Gives a Crap was definitely part of that ripple effect as well. Awesome. So what have you got your sights on next? So currently we're just gearing up for testing product in the US and the UK, which would be really exciting. So we're uh, sending a small amount of, of product into each country and, yeah, we'll be seeing how customers respond to the brand, the product itself, uh, pricing, you know, marketing materials, and then using that to inform what a, the strong launch might look like further down the track. And so that's probably going to take us through to the end of the year, which will, um, yeah, will be a really exciting six months Super for us. Super exciting and great for our US and UK listeners to know that it is just around the corner. So I'll pop all the details in the show notes so that you can sign up to find out when it will be launching, which will be good. And I guess I'd love to ask you, actually, as we finish up here, if you have any advice for people out there, you know, there's a lot of people who want to, you know, who feel frustrated about how the world is and they might not want to quit their job and start a social enterprise. It might not be about that. But, I mean, you've clearly found a way that works for you to feel like you can help really positively in some way. Do you want to kind of give anyone some advice out there on, you know, around the circle of influence as a basic concept and how we can all start to feel like everyone can make a difference? Yeah, I think, you know, the big realization for me is that it's it's very easy to feel like it's not possible to do something. But what ultimately has the most difference is the aggregation of all of the small decisions that we all make as a population. And so it's really just about thinking as every dollar we're spending being a vote in one direction or Mm. another and thinking about how we can make those votes as as powerful as we possibly can. And so I think, you know, as you're saying, you know, quitting your job and starting a social enterprise is not the easy road, (laughs) but that idea of, you know, of every, now there's more and more products that are in this space. And so as a consumer, you can participate with that, but maybe also as someone who's wanting to do something different career-wise, I think there's lots of opportunities out there now to go and work with these organizations and 
you know, not have to give up a salary. You can still earn a living whilst doing something that's, that's really awesome for society. So I think that's hugely exciting because it's something that's really, you know, changed a lot in the last five years and is only going to change a lot more in the next five to 10. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the thing that's really interesting in, especially as you just said, voting with our dollars and that vote being a direction either that way or this way, is when we get in touch with our values as a person, you know, I'm a good person, I'm an honest person, I consider myself to be a nice person, I consider myself to want to be surrounded by and interact with nice people and good brands and people doing the right thing by the people and the planet. It's really amazing when you get crystal clear on what your values are and then starting to judge the products that you might be buying each day or the decisions you're making each day against your own values, how easy it becomes and how powerful the motivation becomes to just switch out so many of the things we're doing because you go, oh, you know, I used to think I was – you know, like let's take Pringles as an example. I'm sorry to call a brand. I'm really not normally a brand shamer, but that whole once you pop, you can't stop thing. And, you know, they've chemically engineered this product for us to feel like we literally cannot stop once we've opened that thing. And it's very hard if you don't do your values work to to stop because the only thing that you're working with to try and stop is um, motivation and willpower. Whereas if you do your values work and then you look at the values of a company that would put that many things into a product to engineer us to be addicted to that product, then you think, well, that's not the type of company I want to buy from. And you kind of get a better fire in your belly to move away from stuff that's just no good for us or the planet. And I think when you start to buy, you know, something as simple as loo paper from who gives a crap and you really feel like, oh, you know, this makes me feel good to buy this because I know these people and I know that they've donated nearly half a million dollars already to clean water projects in the developing world. And and then it becomes a really deep, satisfying thing to buy better for yourself and for the planet. Have you had any customer stories or any, any feedback that's been shared with you guys about how transformative Formative, something as simple as buying toilet paper has been for people? I think, you know, we, we've been really surprised by how well Who Gives Crap has been received and how, how quickly the uptake's been. And I think that, you know, that in itself says something. And that's really all come from our customers telling other people about what we do because they're so excited yeah, yeah. about it. So we had a, a lovely story recently of, you know, a senior citizen who really loved what we were doing and, and so did her friends but didn't have enough money to be able to afford a whole box at once. And so decided with, with her friends to chip in and buy a box and then they all meet up at the pub <laughs> and share the rolls around. And it became this really positive moment of, you know, them all doing something really great together, but also getting to see each other, which is just an added bonus of, of kind of coming together in this sort of informal co-op buying arrangement. Totally. So there's, yeah, little moments like that where, you know, there's these kind of nice little add-ons that come out of buying toilet paper in bulk, which we just never, ever would have thought yeah, of. Yeah, <laughs> no, but and I would never have thought of it either. But in my e-course for Go Low Talks, we often, you know, people who might live in apartments or smaller spaces who don't want to have a huge box of toilet paper to try and figure out where to put it all until it gets used up. And people on our Facebook group were saying, hey, I'm in Perth. If I buy a box, would anyone like to meet up at a cafe in central Perth and, and grab a few rolls? And then the, the thread would just form and 10 people would have said, yep, 
sure, I'll see, you know, just tell me when and where and, and I'll meet you there. It'd be lovely to catch up. And so it's actually taking the online brand and online e-course into physical meetups, as you just said, with that lovely uh, elderly person story. It's happening in our e-courses as well. And we've often got little co-op arrangements happening and meetups happening over toilet paper. I mean, who would have thought that? Like, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's crazy. Yeah, amazing. so amazing. Yep. <laughs> so speaking of amazing, I think I'll wrap us up there and say you are amazing. Thank you so much for doing the work that you do, Simon. It's really awesome to have had this chat and brought your story out to the world. Did you want to share anything to, to wrap up? Any little words of wisdom? No, I think, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's great to be able to sort of walk you through our story and how we've, how we've kind of come to be what we are. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Maybe just the, the web URL is just whogivesacrap.org if people want to jump online and have a look Absolutely. at what we do. Absolutely, and I've got a few more details there for everybody in the show notes. Don't forget to check those out. Thanks, Simon. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Jackrabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.